here this morning. Let your spirit lead, teach, guide, and direct as we learn more about Christ and help us to apply it to our lives and not just talk about it, but to live it in all we do and all we say. And we just thank you for the blessing of this time this morning in your name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 7, continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Acts. We're now up to Acts chapter 7. A little bit of background to remind you of how we got to this point. We were introduced last week in chapter 6 to Stephen. Stephen was one of the first group of seven deacons in the New Testament. Stephen has quite the resume. He's only in the Bible for two chapters. But if you look at it, he starts out running a food pantry. After running a food pantry, he's a deacon, then becomes this wonderful theologian, and then this wonderful apologetics, defending the faith, and then he ends at the end of chapter 7 of being martyred. So he leaves quite the impression on the church. But what happens is, at the end of chapter 6, Stephen is out there and so wisely through the Spirit, debating and winning these arguments about who Jesus is, the Sanhedrin, who is the governing body of Israel, stops and arrests him, and they put him on trial, because they said, you're not allowed to speak about the name of Jesus. So this is where we pick up here in Acts chapter 7. So in verse 1, it says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? Now, this starts a very long message that goes on for 52 verses. And if you look at your sheet that you have here, hopefully you grabbed one, this is an outline. And the reason I did an outline is because there's so much information in this. This is going to cover roughly a 1,000 years of Old Testament history, going all the way from Abraham to Solomon with prophecy stops in the book of Amos and the book of Isaiah. There's a lot of information. And if you just read through this chapter... It sounds like you're just getting a history lesson with no point or no purpose. That's why we have to set the point and purpose here first. Take a look at Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is how he ends the message. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. That's how he finishes his message. What he's doing is this. He does through this message, he says, I have set a pattern of you guys constantly rejecting and resisting God's plan for your life. He basically accuses them of this in verse 51. You're stubborn and you're fake. Stiff-necked, you're stubborn, uncircumcised and hardened ears. Remember, circumcision was the sign that the Jewish men had to show that they were followers of Jehovah, the followers of God. So when he says right here that you're uncircumcised and hardened ears, he's saying you may be physically circumcised, but your heart is not following the Lord. You're faking it. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that says even a broken clock tells the right time twice a day. And we have really got to this point where as a body of Christ here, especially in America, it is so easy to fake it. You just show up for an hour, you sound good, you look good, and you go home. I don't know what goes on in your private life at night. I don't know what happens as soon as you leave this church. We may have some text conversations, some phone calls throughout the week. I may see you on Wednesdays. But you don't know what I do. I don't know what you do. And this idea of accountability and fellowship, it's just not there. And so what happens is it's so easy just to fake it. In so many ways. And he's basically saying this. You have constantly rejected God's messenger. You've resisted God's leading. And there's a thousand years of history to show this Israel. And this is exactly what you're doing to Jesus right now. Rejecting him as Messiah and resisting God's plan on your lives. That's the purpose of this teaching. And as we go through this and we use all these examples, I want you to stop and say, okay, Lord, let's just be honest. Is there something I'm resisting? Is there something I'm rejecting? Something that you've laid on my heart that that you've called me to, and I'm not paying attention to it. Lord, am I faking it? Is my heart yours? Have I truly given it over to you? 
Or am I just the one that shows up and goes home? There's a lot of honesty and truth to this. And as you keep this in the back of your mind, I hope you'll see this pattern of rejecting and resisting. If not, you're just going to see 52 verses of history and wonder why we're doing it. But I hope you see the pattern of this as we go through. So this is roughly a thousand years from Abraham to Solomon. Shows a pattern of rejecting and resisting. Let's see how Stephen starts out the message. And he starts out with Abraham, verse 2. Then he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God. After that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of the circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. He starts with Abraham, the father of the Jews. If you remember correctly, Abraham's first name in the Bible is Abram, which means exalted father. Then God says, name change, I'm going to call you Abraham, which means father of many. Now, when he was called father of many, how many kids did he have? None. (laughs) What a difficult concept. He had to walk in faith with this. And so what happens here is Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and this is where he decides to start. He says, I'm going to start at the beginning, and I'm going to show you this pattern. Well, how did Abraham reject and resist the Lord? Well, I put on your sheet right here all the chapter references, because we're going to go through Genesis, Exodus, etc. You can take notes on that if you'd like, and it also just helps you kind of follow along where we're at in the Bible as we get this overview. But take a look what the Lord asked him to do here. Look back to verse 2. God calls him, and he tells him in verse 3, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So God said two things. Leave the country you're in. You're in a pagan country that I need you to get out from this false religion, false gods, and you need to come away. Away from your relatives. Two things. Verse 4. He does leave the land, but he takes his dad with him. And from there, when his father was dead, he then moved to the rest of the land. Abraham had partial obedience. That's the first pattern you see here, is this half-hearted obedience. God is asking for full obedience. And so Abraham, from the beginning, is setting a pattern of what? resisting the full plan that God has, which is going to bring us to the point of the Jews resisting who Jesus is. Now, let's talk about this idea of full obedience. This has not changed in any way whatsoever. Go with me real quick to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. You know, think back when Jesus called the disciples, when he called Simon and Peter and Andrew, and he called John and James. If you remember the story, as you're going to 1 Kings 19 in the book of Mark, he said, I want you to leave your nets and I want you to leave your dad. And that's what they did. They left their nets and their father. They dropped everything and followed Christ. The same thing today. When we get born again and saved, Jesus is saying, let everything go and follow me. Now, does this mean that we never have a relationship with non-believers? Does this mean that we never hang out with... No, it's not what it's saying. What it's saying is you have now made Christ such the preeminence in your life, everything else comes into second place. And so, therefore, it's leaving everything behind. Jesus made it clear. You must forsake all and follow me. He gets our full devotion. And that's what you saw with Peter and Andrew and John and James leaving the nets, leaving their father, and following Christ. What here happens in 1 Kings 19 is very interesting. This is where Elijah calls Elisha 
to be into the ministry, a prophet. Look at verse 19 of 1 Kings 19. So he departed from there, meaning Elijah, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. That throwing the mantle on is a symbolic saying, I'm giving you the mantle of being the prophet. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Now, that sounds a little harsh. But what Elijah is saying is this, No one's forcing you, Elisha. No one's forcing you. You can't force somebody into coming to know Christ. You can't force somebody into going deeper in the relationship with Jesus. You point them towards the right direction. You encourage them. But it doesn't do any good to push it or force it. Elijah is saying, Elisha, I'm not forcing you to do this. What does Elisha do? Verse 21. Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became a servant. That's quite... The symbolic leaving behind your old profession. It'd be like you farmers out here saying, I'm going to go burn my John Deere to prove that I want to follow Jesus with everything I got. This is what he does. He slaughters the oxen, creates a feast, gives it to them, and he literally takes the yoke, the oxen's equipment that he used, destroys it and burns it. He's completely left behind his old life and is now completely following Elijah to be the next prophet. It's the same thing Jesus is asking us to do. Is when we get born again and saved, he's saying, will you follow me completely? Now, once again, this does not mean that you never associate with non-believers. But there is an element of when you get saved of saying, I have to leave the old life behind. Because I am a new creation in Christ and following him. Abraham was called to leave his country and his relatives. He half-heartedly obeyed. And that's the first point that we have here is resisting God's plan. Now, God still used Abraham. He gets this wonderful calling to be an amazing nation. He gets the land, verses 5 and 6. There's this wonderful blessing that comes on. Prophecy is given in verse 7 that there's going to be a nation that will put you in bondage. That's Egypt, which we'll get into a little bit. And then they also mention the rest of the uh, uh, patriarchs here, verse 8. Isaac, Jacob, and then the twelve. But what you have right here is from the beginning... Abraham resisting God's complete calling and obedience. And this is what Stephen is trying to make a point of as we move on. Now, now that we've been introduced to Isaac, Jacob, and the twelve, what happens next? Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out his fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. Now we move from Abraham to Joseph. Remember, the pattern of rejecting and resisting. Did you catch in verse 9? Patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. Remember, the other brothers were jealous. You remember the story of Joseph. He was the favorite son. The coat of many colors. He had the dream. And this dream that all of his brothers would bow down to him. And Joseph was telling his brothers this. And the brothers finally just got sick and tired of the favoritism. They didn't like that Joseph was the favorite. They didn't like that Joseph had the dream. So what they decided to do is capture Joseph, kidnap him, sell him into slavery, and then fake his death. Why did they do it? Verse 9, because they were envious of him. Keeping this pattern, jump back two chapters to Acts 5, take a look at verse 17. 
Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. They were filled with jealousy. See, what's happening right now in Stephen's time? The Jews are jealous of these Christians. Why? These Christians have complete access to God the Father through Jesus. These Christians are no under any rules or regulations of the law, dietary restrictions. They're not. They're free. They're set free in Christ. And they have this amazing access to God where the Jews are stuck in this religious requirement system. And they're jealous of that. And this envy is creating issues with the church. And what Stephen is trying to say is, guys, 2,000 years ago, the same thing was happening. Joseph's brothers were envious of him, so they captured him and didn't, excuse me, kidnapped him. And then what happened? Take a look at verse 13. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. If you remember the first time his brothers show up, Joseph pretended to not know them. But the second time he revealed. What he's saying is, listen guys, just like the brothers didn't recognize Joseph, you're not recognizing the Messiah. You're not recognizing who Jesus is. Just like Abraham had partial obedience, you're partially obedient. Just like uh, the brothers were envious of Joseph, you're envious of Christianity. Just like they didn't recognize Joseph, you're not recognizing Jesus. He's building this pattern here to show them this is what constantly keeps happening throughout thousand years of history. What happens next? Now we're introduced to Moses. Verse 17, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. To another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they may not live. If you remember what's going on, now we're in the book of Exodus. If you take a look at your outline here, the first couple of chapters, the Jews were having this population boom going on in Egypt. Now they were slaves. And these kids are just being born left and right. So Pharaoh had this idea of, we're going to start killing these kids as soon as they were born. Now, this is just a satanically inspired holy hatred of what God loves. God loves Israel. God loves the Jews. So whatever God loves, Satan's going to hate. And this is a pattern throughout the Bible. You see it happening right there in the beginning of Exodus. Let's kill all the Jewish babies. You see it happening in the book of uh, Esther. Let's try to annihilate the Jews. You see it happening at the beginning of the book of Matthew when Herod tried to kill the young infants. You see it happening in the book of Revelation where the Antichrist comes after the nation of Israel. Whatever God loves, Satan's going to hate. So God miraculously steps in and protects Moses who was born. Verse 20. At this time, Moses was born, and it was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. You remember the story? They had to hide Moses. They put him in the basket. He goes down the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds him, not by chance, but by providence of the Lord. And he's now raised in Pharaoh's house. Verse 22, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brother and the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. He saw an Egyptian beating a Jewish slave. Moses stepped in, killed the Egyptian. Verse 25, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Now, what's the picture here? Moses wanted to redeem Israel, but they rejected and resisted. Verse 27, 
He who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Just as Jesus wanted to save the Jews, they rejected Jesus, just as Moses was rejected as well. And you see this once again, this pattern happening. And they didn't understand, verse 25. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Just as the Jews at Stephen's time did not understand the Messiah. They didn't get it. Why? Their eyes are blinded. Blinded by the God of this world. The same thing still happens today. Have you ever had that time where you are clearly, concisely presenting the gospel to somebody? God has just opened the doors. And it's just like, they didn't get it. And it's just perfectly clear. The Lord has just really blessed it. And they just don't get it. Their eyes are veiled. Their eyes are blinded. The Bible says their heart is not open. That's why it's so vital to make sure the heart is open to where the Lord's leading. Because you think, I I said everything right. I was prayed up. I was ready. What happened? They didn't want it. I had had a situation earlier this week. I had to go to a doctor's visit for something. And you have to fill out the paperwork before you go in. And one of the questions that asked is, uh, you know, what's your occupation? So I always put pastor. and And I've told you before, it's always a conversation killer. It is. So I put down pastor. So the doctor comes in. And he, he says, uh, Pastor, so he goes, he goes, how's the religion business? So I said, I said, it's, it's going good. He goes, are the people good? What's good? I said, well, the people are evil. I'm not talking about you guys. God loves you. But Romans 3 says we're all evil. I said, well, well the people were all evil, but God is good. That's what Jesus said. He goes, good. And I thought we're just going to move on. He goes, you know what? He just stops. He goes, I was born in the 60s. He goes, I was raised in the 60s. He goes, I don't know if I've ever seen turmoil like we have right now. Because people keep talking about the end of the world. He goes, do you think the end of the world's coming? And I'm like, are you really going to make it that easy? You're really just asking me if the end of the world is coming. I said, well, and I went through the list of every prophecy has been fulfilled, rapture, etc., the world getting worse, the second coming, everything. And so he goes, ah, and he looked at me, he goes, you know, we're never, we're never going to figure this out, are we? Moves on. I'm like, well, I figured it out. I, I mean, I don't know about you. So he had to leave the room, comes back again. He comes back again, and he starts up with saying, you know what, when I was little, I I went to church a lot, and sometimes I wonder right now, if something would happen to me, where would I go? And I'm thinking, you're really just straightforwardly asking me just like this. And so I said, well, you know what, I said, Jesus on the cross, entrance into heaven, and, you know, sin, he takes care of it. And he goes, yeah, we're never going to figure this out, are we? And I'm like, we are going to figure this out. I mean, this is what we're going to do right here, right now. I, I think it was presented clearly, a fruit, but... Did not understand. There's times of planting, there's times of watering, and there's times of waiting. And what happens is seeds were planted, and we'll let the Lord kind of go from there. But I look at Moses, and how many times have you said the right things, presented the truth, you've made this convincing argument, maybe even talking to another believer of what the Bible says, and and they're just looking at you with eyes glazed. They just don't get it. Plant the seed, water the seed, get out of the way, and let the Holy Spirit take over. What happened here with Moses? He's frustrated. They're not getting it. Don't you see? I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to get you out of slavery. Now they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Just like they didn't get Jesus was going to save them. So what happens now? Verse 29. Then at the saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. We're into Exodus here. Once again, Exodus 1 and 2. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. 
Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, keep thinking of Jesus here, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. You see what Stephen's doing. Guys, Abraham resisted half-hearted obedience. The 12 patriarchs were envious and jealous, and they didn't realize who Joseph was. Moses wanted to redeem Israel. They didn't want it. Moses was rejected, but God sent him. You see where he's building to this point of this is a picture of Jesus. And he's using their own history to make his case. Now, I, I want to stop here for a second, though, because what happens is this. You see Moses waiting 40 years, waiting 40 years. Verse 29, then at the saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons, and when 40 years had passed. So Moses was 40 when he fled from Egypt, and then he was 80 when God called him to go rescue them. Let's talk about this a little bit. Can you go with me to Numbers, please? Numbers 13. Let's talk about age. That's what we're not allowed to talk about. We're not allowed to talk about how old people are. We've tried to raise our boys, but you don't ask how old somebody is. So as they got older, they decided to ask what year they were born. And I had to correct them, saying you can't do that. Well, I'm not asking how old they are. I know you're not asking how old they are, but you're still being able to figure it out. So I turned 40 this year, and uh, my boys like to say I'm halfway to 80. I don't know where they got that from, but now that's what they say. They're halfway to 80. So I want to talk about being 40, and I want to talk about being in your 80s. Numbers, chapter 13, because I think it's interesting that Moses was 40 when he tried, and then he was called when he was 80. There's another individual by the name of Caleb that you'll see the same time frame with. Did something at 40, then also did something at 80. Now, I've got to be careful with this teaching because sometimes this rubs people the wrong way. Because what happens is this. We, as a society, we kind of work backwards. As we reach retirement age, as we reach our golden years, we feel like we've reached this point of, I can just relax. This is, I've worked my whole life to do nothing. But from a spiritual standpoint, the closer you're to the finish line, you think of Paul, where I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. I used to run cross-country, I used to do some 5Ks, and when you see the finish line, you kick it up. You finish strong. You don't stop and say, hey, there's the finish line, 100 yards, I'm just going to walk it in. Enjoy the flowers and the trees. Now, I'm not saying you try to speed up your death date, don't take it that way, please. But what I'm saying is, you have a race, and you finish the race. And I think we have almost sometimes in this American mentality that I've worked so hard that I now get to earn doing nothing. And the closer I am to heaven, the more I want to enjoy earth. Think that through for a second. The closer I am to heaven, the more I want to enjoy earth. Where the closer I am to the finish line, I should stop and realize, I'm almost done with this race. I want to finish strong. Take a look at Caleb here. Now what's going on in Numbers 13 is this, is they finally get to the promised land. They've come out of Egypt. And so they send in spies into the promised land. Now, two of the spies are Caleb and Joshua. Remember those names. So as they go into the promised land, it's this amazing, amazing area here. And then we're going to be here in Numbers chapter 13. So what do we have? Verse 27. 
Then they told him and said, When we truly went to the land where you sent us, it truly flows with milk and honey. This is the fruit. It's amazing. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Anak are the descendants of the giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. Here's Caleb. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than weak. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Therefore we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, come from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sights, and so we were in their sight. They're too strong, they're too big, they're too powerful, we can't. Caleb says, we can. Now, Caleb at this time is 40. He says, we can do this. Now, what I love about Caleb is this. He does not give in to peer pressure. He may be the minority opinion, but he knows he's right. I tell you, church, just listen up here. Remember what it says in the book of Isaiah. Woe to him who calls what is wrong right and what is right wrong. We're living in an age where people like to call what is wrong right and what is right wrong. We're the minority on a lot of moral issues. We need to be like Caleb and take a stand. We're going to be outnumbered. They're going to be bigger than us. They're going to be stronger than us. But we can do this because the Lord is with us. Chapter 14, verse 1. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And what happens is the people say, let's just go back to Egypt. Let's just go back and die. Why did God do this to us? Verse 6, chapter 14. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh were among those who had spied out the land. They tore their clothes in sign of mourning. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread, and their protection has departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. I tell you guys, we're going to be the minority on a lot of issues. Do we have the strength in the Lord? Remember what the early church prayed for. They prayed for boldness. Do we have the boldness to take a stand and say, I'm going to stand for truth and stand for what the Lord says is right and what the Lord says is good? Only Joshua and Caleb took that stand. And they were able to be part of the generation that did not die in the wilderness. Because what happens now is they wander for the next 38 years and they die in the wilderness, that generation. Joshua and Caleb were blessed by the Lord to say they won't because they took a stand. Now, the nation didn't listen to them, but they still took a stand. Now, fast forward, if you will. Joshua 14, please. Go to Joshua 14. Let's jump ahead 45 years and see how Caleb's doing now. We saw him at 40. He was a man that would not be pushed. He was a man that would not be bullied. He was a man that would take a stand, no matter what other people said. Now we see Caleb at 85. Now, at 85, we're wiser, aren't we? We're smarter, right? Let's see what Caleb has to say here in Joshua 14, verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kinsanite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him, and it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. 
but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Do not skip over verse 8. The heart of the people melted, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. This guy is 85. He's not going to be bullied. He's not going to be pushed. Now, the problem is what we start to see as we get older is we don't have as much strength as we used to have. We don't have as much gumption as we used to have. We don't have as much vigor to go out there and do stuff. But Caleb said, I wholly followed my God. Well, what's going on now? Verse 9. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot is trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Note, anytime you see a phrase repeated, especially in back-to-back verses, pay attention. This man completely gave everything over to the Lord. We went back to the beginning with Abraham, who half obeyed. Caleb, complete obedience. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, here I am this day, 85 years old. And yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. I love that. I'm the same guy. I will take them on. Verse 12. Now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me. And I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. He says, listen, it may happen. I don't know. But at 85, I'm taking that mountain. I'm going to wholly follow the Lord my God. What an example of a guy when he's younger... It's not going to be pushed around and bullied. He's going to take a stand for the Lord. And a guy, when he is older, says, listen, the Lord's with me. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to keep moving forward. I think of what it says in Psalm 71 about how I will declare to the generation following me the truth of the Lord. We may not be able to do as much physically as we used to when we were younger, but there's wisdom There's guidance. You've studied the scriptures for decades. You've prayed over things. You've seen the Lord move and work over decades of your life. You have such a wisdom to impart to other people. You can be like Caleb and take that mountain. I just want to encourage you. If you're into the golden years and you don't think they're that golden, maybe we need to look at Caleb and say, I'm going to go take the mountain. I don't know what's going to happen. I think I can, but I don't know. But the Lord is with me. And I'm not going to spend my years just sitting doing nothing. I'm going to say, Lord, I'm going to impact the generations following me. And whatever I do, whenever I say. What an example Caleb is. And I just want to encourage you with that. Back now to Acts chapter 7. Let's pick up the pace here a little bit. So we talked about Moses. What happens now? Verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him ye shall hear. Prophecy concerning Jesus. You can see how he's trying to bring the scriptures in. Verse 38, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. Moses received the law to give to us. Whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. See the theme again. Resisting, rejecting saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as is written in the book of the prophets. Real quick, will you go with me please to Exodus 32. Moses goes up on the mount to receive the law. To see the law and the testimonies there. And what happens is he's taking time to get back down. People think he's taking too long. 
So now this is what happens here in Exodus chapter 32. This is showing, once again, the theme of Israel. You reject, you resist, you get your eyes off what's true, and you put it on what's false. Verse 30, excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 32 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us gods that shall go before us. But as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of them. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Stop real quick. This is Aaron, brother of Moses, spokesman. Aaron's rod that budded, that's in the Ark of the Covenant. This is Aaron that saw all the miracles. I mean, this, this is Aaron. Moses is gone for a few days. We can't see him. We don't know what's going on. He's taking too long. We need a new God, Aaron. Aaron says, bring me your gold. Verse 3. So all the people broke off their golden earrings, which they're in their ears, brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand. He fashioned it with an engraving tool, made a molded calf. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That quickly, eyes off the Lord, eyes on a false God. See what Stephen is doing here. This is what you guys have done. Your eyes are off the Lord. You're, no, you're not looking towards the Messiah anymore. Jump ahead to verse 17, same chapter. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Joshua says there's a war going on. But he said, it is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing I hear. I hear the party. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger became hot. He cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. So parents, this is like putting soap in your kid's mouth right there. Verse 21, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Moses is even saying, Aaron... How did they push you into this? How, how did they convince you to do this? Verse 22. Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. Let's blame them. They said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Verse 24 may be one of the best verses in the Bible. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. Don't you just love that? I threw the gold in, and this calf just popped out just like that. This is what Stephen's trying to say. You guys have a history of rejecting God's leaders, going after evil things, and this is exactly what you're doing right now with Jesus. Back to Acts 7. Let's finish this up, please. He quotes from Amos, verse 42, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness of O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephim, images which you made to worship, and I would carry you away to Babylon. He says, this is your theme. You go after the false, not the true. The God of Moloch is, is very interesting. The God of Moloch, from what we can tell from archaeology, was a statue that had two arms sticking out like this. And what they would do is they would heat the statue up to fire red, burning hot, and then you would place your oldest son right on the arms, and the son would be burned alive. And the idea is that you are not going to withhold anything 
from the god Moloch. And so therefore, if you were starting up a business, if you were asking for God's blessing, meaning false god, little g, you would place your child on Moloch and offer up your child. And what they would do, according to reports, is they would have music going in drums so that way the parents couldn't hear their kids screaming. It was an awful, awful thing. And so God is saying, Israel, this is what you do. You go after the false And this idea of the tabernacle and the temple, you still want the false. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. You can look on your sheet right there. Then you can see the pattern was in Exodus 25 through 30. Which our fathers, having received in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers into the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. He says, this is what you guys are focusing on now. You got the temple. You got everything you want. You got the temple. You got the sacrifices. You got the ark. You got this. You got that. But verse 48, however, the most high does not dwell in the temple made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? That's from Isaiah. He says, guys, you got your focus on the wrong thing. You have, for a thousand years, consistently rejected. All the way from Abraham, half obedience, to Moses, to Joseph, to David, to Solomon, to the rebellion, to the temple. You guys have always kept your focus on the wrong thing. You've resisted God's leading. You've rejected God's leaders. And you're doing it right now again. Hence, verse 51, you stiff neck and uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the one who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, and have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You're faking it in all ways and all things. You're ignoring God's leading, you're ignoring God's teaching, and you're stubborn. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. Please note in verse 57, that word one accord is the same one accord that we keep using in Acts to talk about good. The church was one accord and unity to serve the Lord. Verse 57, these guys are one accord and evil. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Please note that in two chapters, Saul gets saved and becomes Paul. So you see here in Saul's earlier life, he is part of this group. He is part of the stoning of Stephen, which makes his testimony even more amazing in two chapters. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And in this awful, horrific death, look how God describes it. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Don't you love that? He fell asleep. Nothing about turmoil, pain, awful. He just fell asleep. Because he went from earth right to heaven. This is a chapter of a thousand years of Old Testament history from Abraham to Solomon. It shows this pattern of consistently rejecting and resisting the Lord. What do we take out of this to finish up? Okay, let's just be honest. Is there anything in our lives right now that we're resisting God on? He's laid it on your heart. Something He wants you to do. Someone He wants you to witness to. Some ministry He's called you to. Just a deeper walk. You hear it. You know it. And you're resisting it. Is there anything you're rejecting where you said, Lord, no, I won't? 
Is there anything that we have a pattern developing like that? Do we have the half-hearted obedience of Abraham? Where I'll obey mostly, Lord, but not fully. Are, are we being like Moses? Are we following completely like Caleb? I wholly follow the Lord my God, no matter if I'm 40 or 85. What can we take from this and say, Lord, I want to apply this to my life. I don't want to resist. I don't want to reject. I want to give it to you. And I want to lay it down at your feet and completely be yours, Lord. I don't want that pattern of fighting you. Worship team, if you come forward here for the final song. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, we want to live it. We don't want to just talk about it. We want to live it. We don't want the fake, Lord. We don't want the hypocrisy. We don't want the half-hearted obedience. We want to be wholly, fully committed to you in all that we do and all that we say and to live it out, Lord. Thank you for your love, grace, and mercy. We sometimes are such an evil people, but you love us and you work with us and you demonstrate your love for us while we are still sinners. You died for us. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, and help us to live it in all ways. In your name, amen.